Freedom in Christ has been our theme this year, and hopefully we've gotten some good things out of it as we celebrated this special year at Northside, the, the year of the Lord's favor, we called it. He has brought us this far after 75 years as a congregation, and we wanted to consider some of the freedoms this year that we have that we might not always think about. Our current series is Free from Doubt, being free from doubt. And we've talked about a Christian's attitude should be one uh, that we know we're going to have. And we should have the confidence to tell people that they can know they're going to have. Uh, sometimes we doubt that maybe in some ways. And like I said when I started, I don't know how many have any doubts about their salvation, but sometimes we act like we do a little bit. So that's what this series is about, not to doubting our salvation, having that assurance that we just sang about. Uh, today's lesson is don't doubt your liberty. And this, like I said, will be the last lesson in this short series. Don't doubt your liberty. And before we get started, we need to lay just a little bit of groundwork here. You need to listen this morning. And I know you always listen all the time, but it's easy to drift off sometimes, and it's easy to not stay tuned in. Uh, this lesson, I think, will be easily misunderstandable. Uh, I think if we don't really stay tuned in there, uh, you might get something a little uh, wrong out of this sermon. Uh, I guess I'm admitting I'm a poor communicator there, but I want you to listen close so you get what I'm saying. Um, I put a note down at the bottom of your handout over on the far right side about four things that a Christian must never use their liberty for. We're going to talk about liberty today. And I'm not going to preach about that little note down there. Uh, you can read it now, and it says that we should never use our liberty to sin. We should never use our liberty to cause someone else to stumble. We should never use our liberty to divide the body of Christ, to separate unity in any way. And we should never use our liberty to be a negative influence in any way on the kingdom. That will be a bad influence for other people. Uh, those are all true, and those are all other sermons. Uh, this is a sermon series, in fact, that we could probably do on what we shouldn't use our liberty for. But that's not what this sermon is about. I just put that down there so you know I know all that. And so you don't think I forgot all that. But this sermon is to a saved Christian which is redundant, to a Christian so that we have the full assurance that we've been talking about in this whole series and we don't doubt because someone makes us question our liberties or we never cause anybody else to doubt their liberties. That's all this sermon is about. What saves us and how we live our Christian life and how well we use our liberty and all that's different topics. So, with that ground laid, let's see if we can go through this. Uh, we started this series saying that some of our doubts about salvation might come from false doctrine, reaction to false doctrine. 
so much of the religious world says once saved, always saved. We know that's a, a wrong doctrine in some sense. So we kind of react to that and make sure we always say, uh, I hope I'm going to heaven. And we put those kind of things that sound like doubt in there. There may be some other reasons. Uh, today is a very special reason. Uh, we may doubt our liberties. Now, in fact, this is really, I guess, why we've done this series. Uh, it, it's human nature to limit liberty. Okay? That's just the way we humans are. We like, for some reason, we're constrained to limit liberty. And if you think I'm making that up, let me give you a few examples. For instance, our country is a little over 200 years old. When our founding fathers wrote the Constitution, they put 4,400 words in it, 4,400 words. They said, here is everything you need to run the federal government. This describes the scope and the power and the things that the federal government can do. The federal register, which is in the bottom picture, is all the rules and regulations that mankind has written to explain the 4,400 words of the Constitution, to limit the 4,400 words of the Constitution. And those 80,000 pages that you see there in the Federal Register are the 80,000 pages that were released in 2013. That's not what it's accumulated since 1776. That's what we generate in a year to limit liberty. The Constitution says people have liberty, and here's all the federal government can do, and limits it. And what have we done since? Well, we like to limit liberty. It's just human nature. We want rules and regulations. Anywhere you go, a school, classroom, a, a business, anything, there's rule books that limit liberty. And I know some of it's necessary. But if I go into a business and see that their HR manual is that thick, that scares me a little bit. They've got rules and regulations against everything. Now, that's the way we do as humans. Now, if you see that picture there of the Federal Register, let me ask you a question. Do you think I, as an individual in this country, am following the law? Guess what the right answer to that is? I, I doubt it. Very seriously. Okay. Do you understand? That's where doubts come from. The more you limit liberty, the more doubts you have. Okay? I can read the Constitution and think, I'm doing pretty good on that. I don't think I've violated any of that. But you look at what man adds to it, and I doubt very seriously that anybody is close to keeping that. Okay? Same thing's true in the religious world. Within the first few years of Christianity, Paul had to write Galatians, the book of Galatians. And this is in the early years of Christianity. Just think, we've had 2,000 years to mess it up. Very early in Christianity, Paul had to write to a group of Christians that he had converted to Christ just a few years ago. 
And he called them fools in there. He said, how fast could you forget what I taught you? Well, what had happened? Some Judaizing teachers had come in and said, all right, you can be a Christian, but you got to do one other thing. I'm going to add one thing to limit your liberty. You also got to be circumcised. And they said, well, okay. If that's what we got to do to be saved. And so Paul wrote them, and look at what he says in 5 verse 1. Uh, and this is strong language. He said, it is for freedom that Christ set us free. He set us free so we would be free. Now look, all those people had done was add one thing. And Paul climbed all over them. He said, stand firm. Don't let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Just one thing. But Paul said, no, that's not Christianity. Don't add things to it. Don't limit your liberty as Christians. Don't let somebody limit your liberty liberty as Christians. Eh? Uh, Even earlier than that, as Christianity grew, the church had this problem. In Acts chapter 15, the problem was that the church had started among Jews who had a common history, a common background, a common tradition. They kind of understood things the same. And then Paul and Barnabas and those guys went off and started preaching to Gentiles. Started converting Gentiles. And here there came all these people that had been raised in who knows what. They believed all sorts of crazy things. And they were saved by Christ, by the grace of Christ. And so they came back to Jerusalem to report about all this. And the Christians in Jerusalem said, well now, what among our traditions have we got to make sure that they keep so they can really be Christians? They had a big council about it. And converted Pharisees, people who had been really strict about the Jewish tradition that had become Christians, said, well, we've got to have them be circumcised, and we've got to have them do this, and we've got to have them do this. And Paul said, no. Acts 15.10, why do you try to test God by putting on the neck of the disciples a yoke that neither we nor our fathers has been able to bear? All these other rules and regulations and traditions and things that we grew up with, we couldn't keep them all. It was 80,000 pages of stuff. We couldn't keep up with it. Now, why do you want to start putting that on people that understand freedom in Christ? See, that's the way it goes. We as humans, we as Christians, we in religion, we anywhere. Want to limit liberty. We're tempted to do that. Now, at this point, I'm going to be real honest with you here, folks. Especially my peers who were raised in the Church of Christ. I'm going to be real honest and tell you that I think beyond human inclination and beyond religious inclination, I think that we have an added problem. Because it's restoration movement nature. To limit liberty. I'm not saying it's a horrible thing. I'm just saying that's the way it is. 
That's the way human nature is, the way religious nature is. That's the way restoration, restoration movement nature is. If you're visiting with us and don't know what the restoration movement is, that's all right. That's the mindset, that's the culture, that's the movement that we kind of came out of. And within that movement, uh, well, everyone has a worldview. Well, let's make sure we understand that. But our worldview, because of where we've come from, is we study the Bible logically and rationally. Okay? Now, I think that's a good thing. I'm not condemning it. I'm saying that's a good idea. But that's different than some people. Uh, some people don't even include the Bible in their thinking about what you need to do to be saved. Some people take the parts of the Bible that they like. Some people uh, think, well, the Bible's got some nice ideas in it, and if you can find some good advice, that's all right. But we, in the Churches of Christ, we from the Restoration Movement, believe we study the Bible logically, rationally, basically, actually scientifically. And we believe that you can find the truth. If you study with the right method, if you check your Hebrew and Greek, if you got the right translation, if you got all that going for you, you can find the truth on any topic. Now, you can. I'm not saying that's wrong. I think you can. But what we tend to do, since we've got this mentality, I think, is we kind of expand truth to everything we understand. We figure some things out. We get this doctrine figured out or this method figured out or whatever, and we think, well, that's truth. And that tends to make us a little bit skeptical of those who haven't figured it out as well as we have. And we might even give some folks the impression that there are some limits. There's some extras that you better comply with beyond the very basic truth about salvation. From our heritage, shall we say, we understand that we're seeking to restore the ancient order, the ancient gospel. The ancient order is the way first century Christians did things. How did they worship? How did they do this? How did they function? How did they organize the church? That's the ancient order. And we're seeking to restore that. The ancient gospel is the way of teaching the gospel. And there's a temptation there, folks. There's a certain nobility about that. A certain status about that. I'm restoring the ancient order. I'm restoring the ancient gospel. Working on restoration gets serious. I'm not saying it shouldn't be serious. I'm just saying that's kind of the way we begin to think. And it implies that there is an attainable perfection that may be kind of complicated, but it's attainable and it's perfect and it's a perfect understanding. Beyond the very simple truth of the gospel. Let me try to illustrate it this way. I visited one time with a, an old car guy. 
Now, there's different kinds of old car guys. You know, I'm a kind of an old car guy. I like old cars, and some particularly I like, I'd like to have one sometime. I think it'd be cool. Yeah, but I don't know everything about them. Yeah, I mean, if they look good and they're shiny and they run and all that, I think that's a pretty good car. But the guy I was talking to was the other kind. He's a restorationist. Yeah? He likes original. He wants it to be exactly like it was when it came off the assembly line. Okay? I was visiting with him, and he had this new purchase that he had made, and it looked really good to me. And he said he had to work on it. And I said, well, what do you got to do to it? You know, it looks perfect to me. And he raised the hood, and he said, well... See that red wire there? I said, yeah. He said, it's supposed to be black. He was serious about it. Okay? Now, and that's okay when you're restoring old cars and all that. But, and he didn't have this attitude, but could you see where when you're that serious about something, it would be easy to kind of look down on other folks. It would be easy to kind of think, eh, they're not up to my standards. I think we can do that sometimes in our understanding of the truth. Okay? Now, because of all that, because it's human tradition and religious nature and, and our nature to some degree, I want to be very careful about not limiting liberty. So I've picked three things that I think will help us do that. First, always allow liberty for maturity. As you're judging somebody's actions or thoughts or doctrines or beliefs or whatever, always remember that there's different levels of maturity in the church. Okay? Humanly, we don't expect the same thing out of a nine-month-old that we do out of a ten-year-old. Or a 30 or 40 year old. We expect people to grow and have a better understanding and to mature. And because of that, we apply things differently to them. Anybody ever watch a little kid's basketball? You know, they start four and five year old kids playing basketball. Okay, we know what the rules are. But when you're refereeing a four and five year old, what do you do about those rules? You understand them. Up here, but you don't apply them up here. I mean, a four- and five-year-old will take the ball, and they'll dribble twice, and they'll stop and look around, dribble a couple more. It's okay with them. Now, you don't want to teach them that that's okay, but if they just forgot, if they just slipped, it's their first game, you don't blow the whistle. We understand maturity. Same thing in Christianity. Brand new Christians not going to understand some of the deep doctrines, not even some of the easy doctrines. They don't have to, folks. They're babies. They got to understand that God exists and Jesus died for them. We allow for that. Secondly, I think we ought to always allow for opinion. Leave some liberty in there in matters of opinion. The Bible is a lot closer to the Constitution 
than it is to the Federal Register. You get that? The Bible, in fact, the Bible is simpler than the Constitution. It doesn't have many rules and regulations in it. Now, the old Jews, they had lots of rules and regulations. New Testament, you've got to, it's really hard to find many rules and regulations in there. It's almost all principles. And since it's almost all principles, if we who are mature and understanding and think we've restored things and all that, if we start teaching that, well, you have to do it this way and teach it this way and believe it this way, we may have stepped over the edge. There's a whole lot in the Bible that is not black and white. Almost everything, listen close now, almost everything that we have done this morning is probably very, very different from what a first century Christian did on Sunday. The way things were done. They sang. They prayed. They took communion. But the way we do things, what we have become used to, what we have decided is the ancient order in some cases, is largely based on our opinions, our traditions, our favorites. We've got to be real careful about limiting liberty on things like that. Third, always allow liberty for doctrinal differences. And I know some people just elevated out of their seat a little bit on this one. Listen to me now. If you want to argue with me about this, you tell me first that you've got all doctrines figured out exactly right. If you're willing to say that, I'll argue with you. If you think you might want to have one of them just a little bit wrong, then I think you better get on my side and allow for doctrinal differences. Okay? Now, when I say doctrine, some people think of the basics. I'm not talking about the basics, the faith that the Bible talks about. But that's very, very narrow. You go looking for that. In fact, I did an experiment. I did preached a couple times about it. That I would go through the New Testament and write down every verse that said, you've got to do this or you're going to hell. This is mandatory. This is salvation stuff. I didn't get a very long list. I fear sometimes we make a pretty long list. Not the only things you can find that say that, folks, are that you've got to believe that God exists. You've got to believe that Jesus is his son, that he died for us and was buried and was resurrected. That he commands us to repent and be baptized. He commands us to love our brothers. Beyond that, you can't find much. That's the basic truth of the gospel, folks. That's where we started in lesson one of this. What are you going to be saved by, law or grace? Here's what grace is. I pick grace. But we live in our generation, and we get to thinking, 
That's the way it's always been. So it's got to stay that way, and we can't change it and all that. We kind of have that mindset. So let me add two more things here that help me from limiting liberty, I think. When I get to thinking, is this essential? Have we got to make somebody understand this, believe it, behave this, do this way, think this way, or whatever? A couple things I think of. First, I always think of the eunuch. Stories in Acts chapter 8, if you want to read it, 26 through 39. The eunuch was a a God-fearing Jew. He was from Ethiopia. He understood the Jewish traditions, I think, and the Jewish law to some degree. He loved it enough that he traveled to Jerusalem every year for the Passover. He was on his way home. He was reading the Old Testament scriptures, read a prophecy about the Messiah, God knew that he had good soil in his heart, so he sent Philip to talk to him. Philip said, what are you reading? He said, do you understand it? He said, no, I don't understand it. So Philip preached about Jesus. Somewhere in that sermon was baptism, one of the basics. Because pretty soon Philip said, whoa, there's some water. He said, I'd like to be baptized. Philip said, okay. Now, I don't know how long they traveled together. I don't think it was very long, the way the story goes. I mean, Philip could have ridden all the way back to Ethiopia with him, I guess, but I'm talking maybe two or three hours to most. Philip told him everything he needed to know and all that, and when he was done, Philip was caught away, and Ethiopian went on his way rejoicing. Think about that. He went home to Ethiopia, the only Christian there, as far as we know. How long had he studied? Hardly any. What did he do when he got home? He didn't have a New Testament on the shelf, folks. He didn't have a Bible to pick up and start trying to figure out the deep doctrines of Christianity. He had no church to go to. He couldn't assemble on the Lord's Day. Hopefully he started one pretty quickly, but he didn't have one. How would this guy score on all of our tests for faithfulness? I I find it hard to believe that he'd do very well. But I also believe he's going to be in heaven. It's not the perfect knowledge. It's not the, the perfect understanding and the perfect way of doing things and all that. It's going to get us to heaven, folks. That's what this is about, this whole series. So I always think of the eunuch, the Ethiopian. And the other person I consider is consider a Christian in the Dark Ages. Now think about this one for a while. Meditate on this one. They'll get to you after a while. People in the Dark Ages, there were Christians then. They had no Bible. There was a corrupt church. It was the only thing religious that there was. But some of those folks heard about Jesus somehow and believed in him and obeyed the basics and were immersed into Christ and became Christians saved by grace. And beyond that, they probably worked 16 hours a day just to feed the family. And went home and fell in bed. 
and work up to go back to the fields. That was their whole life. How would they do on our tests for faithfulness? Not very well. In fact, when I get to thinking about yeah, people in the dark ages or just old-time folks, I like to personalize it. Let me tell you about Thomas Tandy. You think, well, you misspelled it. Well, no, Thomas misspelled it, not me. <laughs> Thomas is the oldest relative I have traced. He was born in 1520, died in 1588 in England. He's 14 generations away from me. So he's my great, 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 great grandfather. He was a husbandman, which just means a farmer, in central England, lived in the village of Longden. Basically illiterate, I'm sure, because that's the way people were back then. And that's fact, in fact, that's where the spelling weirdness comes from. You, you get back a few generations, and the clerk in the city or the clerk at the church that recorded the name went the birth was basically illiterate. But they didn't have standards for spelling. So Thomas's daddy went in and said, we've got a boy named Thomas. Our name's Tandy, and the guy wrote it down this way. The next generation spelled completely different, T-A-N-D-I-E. took a number of generations before they settled on T-A-N-D-Y. So this is the culture we're dealing with. Once again, a farmer that works probably around the clock. Uh, Actually, Thomas was pretty well off. I've got his estate listed. When, When he died, here's his estate. He had three cattle, seven sheep, two bedsteads. A table and some benches, brass pot, and a pewter dish. What's in his estate? That's all he had. There was no Bible listed in his estate. Don't think he had a Bible. Okay. A couple generations later, one of my ancestors got that listed in the estate. One Bible. Worth three shillings. Which was what some of the furniture was worth. But at this generation, I don't think Thomas had a Bible. He was buried in the churchyard in Longden. That's where he's buried. One of those tombstones might be his. I don't know. I haven't been to visit it yet. But in his will is this statement. First, I bequeath my soul to Almighty God, my Maker and Redeemer, by whom I trust to be saved. He went on to say, my body to be buried in the churchyard of Longdon. And I think old Thomas, I don't think Thomas ever read a Bible. I know he didn't understand Hebrew and Greek. I know he didn't have a commentary. He didn't have a lexicon. He didn't have a CD library where he could check out what any preacher ever said about any topic. But somewhere, Thomas learned the basics. Somewhere, Thomas learned the basics and believed them. And he put his trust in God and his Savior Jesus to save him. I doubt he was very mature in Christ. 
I imagine he had some crazy opinions about things. And I bet he had very few doctrinal beliefs. If he had any, they were probably kind of odd. You know, about what's Revelation, I probably didn't know what Revelation was. I imagine that the way he worshipped on Sunday sounded and looked a whole lot different than what we just saw in the last hour. So the question is, will I see Thomas in heaven? Well, if I do, the first thing I'm going to do is tell him to get his name tag right and (laughs) clean that up. The answer is, I don't know if I'm going to see him. You know, uh, he may have been a scoundrel for all I know. You know, when he died, his wife may have had that put on the tombstone. I I don't know what kind of guy he was for sure. I know what his will said. I I don't know his heart. I'm going to let God figure that one out, and he'll get it just right. But I'll tell you this. If I had the choice of two tombstones, and one tombstone said, Here lies Stephen Tandy. He had doctrine perfect. He knew how to worship exactly the way the first century church did. He understood the scriptures better than anybody else. Or I could have another tombstone that said, Here lies Stephen Tandy. He trusted his soul to his maker and redeemer because he believed his Savior died for him and he was saved by his grace. I'll take the second one. Well, we've been through the series. We have covered four topics. Blessed assurance. There's two ways to be saved. By law or by grace, you get to choose. Because he said so, we shouldn't doubt. song we sang at the end of that sermon, remember it? What did he do? He died for you. Where is he now? He's in heaven interceding. He said, I've got a place ready for you, and I'm going to come back and get you. Last time lesson was me and sin. We move to a new neighborhood when we're in Christ. The old neighborhood was for condemned sinners. When we moved into Christ, we're still sinners, but now we're forgiven sinners. We're cleansed sinners. And today's don't doubt your liberty. Don't ever misuse your liberty. We didn't talk about that today, but don't ever doubt your liberties. How about your tombstone? Don't know where your graveyard's going to be. What's it going to say on the tombstone? What are you going to trust in when it comes that time? If you haven't trusted your future in heaven and your abundant life here on earth to the grace of God, you need to do that this morning. Let's stand and sing if you need to come.